Hey friends, special announcement before we start this week's show. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B, json.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. As usual, I'm just excited for today's guest, but I'm more excited because they're returning guests, and this is a pretty limited class for us. Today's guest joins TJ Sanders and super best friend of the show, Ben Saxon, as our only returning guest. So today's guest is a national team member on our women's indoor team. She's a national champion with Defensa. She went from Rookie of the Year to Player of the Year when she was at Marquette. She transferred to Michigan State. It feels like she was an academic All-American at every year in her NCAA eligibility, and like I said, she's returning to the show Sorry for interrupting your holidays, but welcome back to the show, Autumn Bailey. Autumn, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So it's exciting that you're back from the West Coast and back into Ontario. So like I said, sorry to interrupt your family time, but I feel like even that needs a break sometimes. So maybe this is like a a well-earned phone call for you. Yes, that's for sure. I'm uh, just one-on-one with my parents for the week. So uh, I'm happy to do this right now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, glad we could make time and... I'm sure this is fresh on your fans' minds and mine as well, that you've been keeping us up to date with your rehab. And what makes this extra challenging for you, I feel like, is when you were on our show the first time, you mentioned when you got injured at Michigan State and you were trying to be positive. And it was kind of a little bit of a blessing because you caught up with your courses and you were able to transfer and, and come back. But I feel like getting injured as a pro, did it feel the same? Like, is it mentally challenging because, like, it costs you a year of pro, it costs you some national team matches? Like, do, do you ever get used to this injury thing? Is it worse than before, same from before? Like, how are you feeling when it when it first happened? Yeah, um, it's devastating. I think it's always devastating, especially such serious injuries. And just when it happens, you kind of know how long-term it's going to be in the recovery. And I had no idea that this one was going to be this long-term. I mean, I remember I was crying on the floor in Peru, kind of knowing what had happened. Um, the injury felt the same as the first one. So I just kind of knew though I hoped it was something else, but, um, and then just cried 10 times harder because I knew how long I was going to be out for. And at the time I thought like eight to 10 months of recovery, that's so brutal. And I had just signed to play in Italy and was going to miss the Olympic qualifiers and everything kind of that was lined up. So that was devastating. And then um, here I am, I think 17 months after surgery and had no idea I'd still be out right now. I thought for sure it was just like a year kind of thing so that's equally as devastating and yeah definitely you never get used to it and uh definitely missing it a lot I think both injuries had different challenges and so kind of just going through and dealing with the differences and that right now yeah one thing that stood out to me when I went back and listened to your first episode which I I recommend any of our listeners did who missed it is you mentioned like there's almost this badge of honor that as an athlete I think we want to battle through and do these things that you were even hesitant to get a sports psych but you eventually made the choice and, and got a lot of benefit out of that so I'm wondering second time through did you go that path right away where you wanted somebody to talk to or you wanted to feel like you were progressing because the as any sport fan knows, there's a lot of people that like retire from injury just because they don't want to do the rehab and it's so mentally draining that the the pain is one thing, but the mental battle of doing it every day and maybe not feel like you're progressing is another thing. So I'm wondering what you could anchor to this time, whether it was a sports psych or teammates or, or what you could do to try to stay engaged with this long path you're on. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The mental side is definitely, I would say the hardest battle. I mean, it's painful and it hurts physically, but we've pushed through pain before. So I think the mental part and being out is the toughest aspect. And, um, yeah, you kind of are like purposeless or it feels purposeless for a while. And, um, I find a lot of my identity in volleyball, which I'm working on now, trying to find it in other things and, um, trying to find, yeah, just purpose and 
not having accomplishments in volleyball necessarily. Um, but yeah, I, I saw our sports psych pretty early on uh, after the injury, just because like you said, I knew the benefits this time and it was super important and uh, worked with her for a long time. Um, and we kind of were working through things like that, trying to find value in other things. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that right now, nothing is comparing to volleyball for me and maybe that's just the case and maybe I have to just find other things that I like to do and that hasn't been easy by any means I think we just grow up so specialized in and maybe you play different sports I played a lot of different sports growing up but you kind of start to specialize in one and obviously starting volleyball at such a young age I just found my identity in it and so it's been kind of a rude awakening both times to find that I don't have a ton of balance outside of volleyball and it's hard to do I don't think that's easy but if you can figure that out um, at a younger age or before an injury, then I think you're ahead of the game a little bit. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's not too personal, if you could give us an example, whether it's, I don't know, art or music, or you got into writing or what would be like a side hobby that you've invested in? Because like you said, it's hard to reach your level if you're not at a singular focus, but when that's taken away from you, like, what do you respond with? Right. Totally. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I've tried kind of a few different things. It's been interesting. Um, well, the tough part for me too, is that a lot of stuff that I like to do involves being active. So even if it's outside of volleyball, I really love, um, going for hikes, especially living in BC that you kind of had, have endless opportunities, um, for things to do outdoors, but that was kind of taken too. So, um, <laughs> I tried for a little while and I'm kind of still, I kind of still say that I'm trying to learn Spanish. I haven't been super active with it, but <laughs> Try to learn Spanish. Um, I was journaling a lot at the beginning, mostly just kind of trying to write out how I was feeling about my injury and where I was at. And then recently I've tried to learn guitar, which like, I don't know how people learn guitar. My fingers are in so much pain. I've had to take breaks. I, and I'm, I think all the time, like, I thought it was pretty tough going through these injuries <laughs> and I have to break from the guitar, which is so embarrassing. But so I haven't gotten super far in that either, but working on it. But those are pretty much the things. And trying to hang out with friends and well, I guess COVID's a little bit weird for that, but just trying to reconnect with a lot of friends from college and um, friends from pro and stuff. So. Nice. Yeah. I know it is an unfortunate time, but it's cool to hear your process and how you're reflecting it and building through it. And just for my own benefit, because I've read a lot of this, I'm totally sold on the benefits of journaling, but I just can't get into a routine. So I'm wondering when you were doing it, did you follow like the same three question format? Did you honestly just do like a daily log? Like, how did you find the most benefit? Because like I said, it, it for learning and for reflecting, I think it, it's awesome. And it's proven that way. But I just can't get into the routine. Yeah, I definitely can't either. And I think at the beginning, it was more like spur of the moment when I was just feeling super emotional or um, had kind of like a cool thought about my injury. Or I know there was one time when for a lot of the beginning of my injury, I wrote a lot about how I was struggling with it and kind of depressed and how it was, it felt unfair and just kind of all my authentic feelings around it. And then I know I had one day where I just thought, you know what, this can't define me. This defined me last time. And it can't like be the sole focus of my life though, though it is like, I'm just trying to rehab and get back on the court. That is the sole focus right now, but, um, and the priority, but I think I needed to figure out other things and live outside of that and not just be so consumed by it. So, um, I was working on journaling about that kind of stuff too, but definitely didn't follow any format and it was pretty random. And I mean, my journal has like random entries. I did, I started trying to write things that I was thankful for and, make it positive. Yeah. It's just super random. And, but it, I think it helped in that way. Cause even looking back now, I'm, I can see that I've come a long way from where I was at at the beginning of the injury and I'm um, trying to have a life outside of it a little bit. Nice. Yeah. It reminds me when we had uh, Pierce Ashinko on the show from Trinity Western and he shared an amazing quote. Uh, I think Bon Jovi was the original one who talked about, you know, this is my profession. This is something I take serious, but at the end of the day, it's just rock and roll. And Pierce really benefited that. And he said like, Again, to be a high-level volleyball player, you need to focus. But at the end of the day, it's just volleyball, right? So I'm wondering, have you ever found the balance or have an aha moment where it's okay that you're singularly focused and you want to dedicate and you want to be the best, but you can switch it off? Like, uh, again, I find myself as a coach watching video and you just get into this wormhole and you get distracted where it's really hard to switch off. And I'm wondering, have you found maybe a secret that Pierce found about like, I'm going to be serious on this, but at the end of the day, I can switch it off. Yeah, actually, that's a really cool quote. And I don't think that I've kind of come to that point yet still. And I think I've just been so singularly focused. And it's just blaringly obvious through these injuries that I've not been able I just think I've been so focused on it. Um, 
since such a young age that I only know volleyball. And uh, I think that's super cool if you can have balance and think, yeah, there's other things that are priorities to me and that are important. And at the end of the day, it's just volleyball. And I think because it became the center of my life, kind of all the decisions I ever made, I mean, transferring, um, I loved my time at Marquette, but thought I needed to transfer for more of a challenge and just constantly like kind of leaving and make like uprooting and choosing different things just for volleyball. And so I think it's been hard to switch it off a little bit and it still feels like the priority. And I guess in a way in my head, it feels like, well, if I'm not super focused and volleyball is the only thing, then I'm not being as competitive as I could be. But in reality, having balance is what's making you a better person outside of volleyball and making you probably better on the court too. So I think that's more important and I'm definitely coming to that conclusion now. Nice. Well said. And I'm curious, just because professional volleyball is still a bit of a mystery and here I am in the volleyball world, but more on the beach side, I guess I should say. But logistically, as soon as you got injured, did the club kind of and you just choose to split ways? Like, because I think some people might be thinking of professional like North American sports where (laughs) if, if you're a Toronto Maple Leaf and you tear your knee, well, you're rehabbing with the Toronto Maple Leafs where you obviously didn't go to your club. And are you considered a free agent? And they essentially like ripped up your contract or what is the process of a pro player when you do get injured? Yeah, I had no idea kind of going in and I thought, I guess we'll see what happens. And I mean, I think I had one conversation with them and it was kind of like, well, that's that. Thanks for your time. And it makes sense. I mean, I didn't do anything for them, so it kind of made sense, but it's definitely not the same as it works in North America where you think you kind of have some sort of security. That's just that. And Nope. Ripped up the contract. It was actually, um, I signed a year plus one contract and it was on my terms. So I got, to, it was in Italy in Bergamo, the city's called. And, uh, so it was supposed to be the one year. And then the next year I could decide if I wanted to stay or not. And, uh, yeah, so it was a bit devastating. It's kind of a two year thing that, or hopefully two year thing that was just ripped up and canceled. So that's too bad. Yeah, too bad. But obviously, when you're back, I guess it'd be nice to have a clean slate and be a free agent again. But yeah, it is disappointing to hear how cutthroat some volleyball can be with the one year at a time. Or like you said, you were lucky to get the one plus one, but still have it voided on an injury. So yeah, for sure. And also now I think going back, I'll need to really choose wisely which um, league I'm deciding to play in and what's best for me and for, for my knee. So I think that is kind of a blessing in disguise in the long run. So with an injury like that, is it your understanding you can come back 100% full or when you say like be considerate of your knee, like maybe I, I don't want to stereotype, but let's just do it because we're a volleyball podcast. If you go maybe to an Asian club team where they like to train twice a day and play a lot and their foreigners are going to get the lion's share of sets, like maybe that wouldn't be a fit as much as another team that's maybe a little bit more balanced or wouldn't rely on you to, you know, hit 60 balls a match or something like that. Yeah, um, I think mostly I'm trying to consider when I come back, I guess just managing expectations from. A coach, um, I think they put a lot of pressure on foreigners to perform and a lot of um, countries have specific rules about how many foreigners you're allowed to have on the court at a time. And so they definitely expect you to be performing. So I think that I'll take that into consideration. But in terms of kind of where I'm at with my knee, I think that when I return, I hope to be just 100% and feeling confident about it. It'll take time, obviously, to gain confidence again. But um, like health wise, I just don't think I'll return until my knee is a hundred percent. Also with having a second injury, it's just not really worth the risk to me. So that's kind of why it's, I mean, I'm still having pain, so that's why it's taken so long. But besides that, I definitely want to just see it through to the end and make sure it's in the best possible situation to return to the court so that I can play kind of carefree, hopefully again. And have there been any little victories along the way? Sorry to spend so much time on your injury, but it is no, something you've uh, nice to talk about. <laughs> you, you've documented really well. So, is it a win when you can play sitting pepper or those little things come up? Like, what are some little anchors you come to, like that you can almost experience joy again, or know that like the process is coming through and you're going to be better and and really making progress versus kind of just those groundhog days where the next day feels like the previous and you're not really making progress. Yeah. And there are so many days like that. Um, and I think that's something that I learned through the first injury is to try to like really get excited about the small victories. Um, so I think that I have been seeing a lot of progress, um, in my strength lately, I guess if just to clear, clarify that I have a, I had a cartilage surgery done, um, back in August of 2019 and the cartilage has just given me some problems still. So I haven't been able to, um, kind of stand up through my knee or walk properly yet. So it's been, yeah, 17 months of like kind of a weird limping walk. So 
kind of recently I've been gaining more muscle, which is just huge um, prerequisites before you can do other things. And uh, so that's been super exciting. And then there was the one day I was in my physio's office and we were trying to like, I haven't been able to just stand up straight through one leg. I kind of get almost to the top and then I just have to keep it bent. And the one day I thought, I think, I think I'm the pain might be down enough that I could maybe do it today. And I did it and I just burst into tears and we were just hugging. It was kind of just this crazy moment. Like that's a huge progression. And it would mean that I could maybe start walking normally, which would just help everyday life. So kind of little things like that. I haven't really been able to do it since, but um, anything like that is super exciting and try to keep my spirits up with those things. Nice. Nice. And I'm curious with your rehab program, what the energy has been like at the oval, because they they've done a good job. Uh, I believe they recruited basically high schoolers to be in the, the NEP, but they also had a different group of university athletes as well. So it seems like there's some fresh blood going there. So have you popped your head in as a vet or have you been around or checked in with the coaches about like the, the youth movement that seems to be happening, which is, you know, again, we're a volleyball show, not a COVID show, but it seems like the national team did get organized through this pause that everyone's feeling during COVID and, and get this youth movement going, which is exciting. Yeah, I think they did a really great job with that and um, being able to continue our training. Um, I did pop my head in a couple times. I wasn't able to be around a lot because um, my training with our team strength coach was usually during the practice time, but um, no, it looked awesome. I, I saw a couple of practices and yeah, high, high energy at the Oval Volleyball is definitely um, kind of big there right now. And uh, with uh, FTC practicing and NEP practicing, um, lots going on. And yeah, I just think. Um, it was really cool that they were able to keep training kind of through COVID. And yeah, I think we're, we hope we're hopeful that we're going to have some strong athletes in the future, just from watching them train. And they're all taller than me, which is insane. <laughs> <laughs> now, one unfortunate thing, well, I, I should mask it. It's not unfortunate in a sense that it, it sucks losing a coach like Tom Black, but obviously Shannon steps in and it's, it's exciting again, but when losing Tom and and we had you on the show previously and talked about all the exciting things he was doing and we were lucky to get him. So just as kind of like a, an exit uh, interview, I guess for him, what stands out in your mind as things that he could accomplish? Cause I mentioned, uh, or excuse me on your first episode, you mentioned mindfulness was a big thing and the growth mindset and really establishing systems. Like I think he deserves a lot of credit for the short time he was with the program. He did a lot. Is that fair to say? Oh, a hundred percent. I kind of wrote him a text after we found out that he um, was leaving and just said that exact thing that he did so much for this program. And it's so, it's so cool and also unique to see someone basically, and, and we had, he had a great support staff, but he changed our minds and how we viewed the program and how we viewed ourselves. And it was him and uh, the other coaches were certainly breathing that into us as well, but he just kind of every day came in and it didn't matter if you, if you didn't believe he was going to make you believe. And I think that was super cool. And it just changed what everyone thought we could do and within the program. And it's, I don't know, I just have so much respect for him and nothing but good things to say um, about him because of that. I just think that's pretty rare that someone can feel that strongly about something and impact everybody and kind of get them all on board with him. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Well said. And that's, that's really powerful. I'm wondering if you could give an example of, of some of the other coaches listening who we could borrow this for our own coaching. So how did he come across that way? Was it because he was organized or the way he spoke with such passion that he knew these things were going to work or, or how did he really sell you on this idea that like, like you said, you didn't need to buy in. He was going to like get you to buy in just by his own delivery or his passion or his organization. Like what went into this, this feeling he created? Yeah, I think it was an everyday thing about, kind of everything he did, it was super organized and just the discipline, like he just taught, he just totally changed the discipline in our gym and didn't have any room for, well, bullshit for lack of a better (laughs) word, but, um, he kind of just, yeah, he, he, uh, um, like ran a tight ship, but it was every day and he cared about you as a person outside of volleyball. So you knew that you could count on him in that way, but just on the court, he was demanding all the time. There was never, and for sure, sometimes people were exhausted from it or thought they were giving their best, but he was still pulling more out of each person. And I'm sure it took so much energy from him or there were days when he just didn't want to bring it. And then he just knew he had to. And you can either, I think, try to, to make a team bring that. And I think that happens at higher levels. And when teams are up there and have experienced maybe going to the Olympics or 
having success, maybe that comes from them. And, but then there's also times when that's not the case kind of with our team. And, um, he just was showing us what we could be and genuinely believe that. I think that for a long time, we thought that we had potential and could do something, but weren't necessarily seeing the results. So it's hard to just come back every year and think like, okay, well, this is the year, but Tom was set on it being the year to do that. And we improved significantly because of that. And when you reflect on your own improvement, what stands out? Because again, when we had you on the show the first time, you mentioned like your whole passing technique had changed. Obviously, that would have transferred to like your offensive game and hitting out a system. Like, how did you really keep the faith that uh, I think it was in your own words, you mentioned like you got pretty bad for a minute and then you like you obviously get good again. But dealing with that frustration or somebody kind of trying to change things you had done your whole volleyball career, like how did you really buy in and stay on this pathway that like your performance was going to drop no question but you knew that you were going to ramp up and be at a better level yeah I think that in college I got away a lot with and even in my first year of pro it's kind of like they teach different um, techniques and so you're kind of in between techniques all the time or trying to do what your coach says but stick to something you learned before something that worked for you so I think I kind of got away with that a little bit I I don't think I passed well when I was in Turkey but um, when I was in college I passed pretty well and I just think when I got to national team Tom was kind of like what are you doing like it looked like I was doing a few different techniques blended together which is probably exactly what I was doing but um, he just said like this isn't going to work for every situation and it's, it wasn't refined by any means. So I think that was kind of a rude awakening. I got away with some random athletic movements that I was trying to do before, but, um, he definitely broke it down to the basics and said, this is how you need to do it. This is what works best. Proved it with so much video. We watched tons and tons of video and made it just completely simple. And which was weird for me. I think I did way too many steps and movements before. And really I passed best when I just barely moved at all. So I think he broke down technique. Um, that's mostly how I got better with him. And also I just started kind of loving volleyball again. I was learning again and, um, had kind of a fire for it. And that was all due to Tom too. Um, but yeah, in every skill, he was kind of questioning me and going back and I don't think I've really faced that a ton. So, um, it was good for me. And I, think I learned that I need to refine a lot of skills if I want to perfect them. And when you watch the people who are best in the world, they do really refined, perfect technical things. So I want to also do that. So, um, he showed me that and I was stubborn at first, but, uh, I think I gained a lot through that. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that learning was fun again. And you wanted to go to the gym because again, your first interview, I was just alarmed by how long you guys were at the facility. And I understand that like you went from like, sometimes it'd be a four hour block. Sometimes it would be two a days. Like it it was pretty grueling. And like you said, like the performance drops a little bit and then it goes back up, but it was still fun to be around. So I'm wondering how did you reflect or break up your day? So you knew you could still be getting better. I think Tom did a good job of this, that uh, there'd be like a warm up game and then like a tutoring session. And then eventually that would blend into gameplay. So naturally as an athlete, I think it would climb, but how did you feel going through the process that like these When you describe it to me, it sounds like a long day, but when you experience it, it doesn't sound like it was this long and grueling that it was actually a fun experience. Yeah, I yeah, I did love it after a while. For sure it's grueling and long. I mean, we were there for three to four hours in the morning and then just a short lunch break and come back in the afternoon, either for a lift or another session, and then often we had a mental or sports psych session after that. So sometimes we'd be at the gym from seven till seven or seven till six, something like that. And uh yeah, grueling for sure. But I think just because we were seeing improvements, it was we were eager to get in there and work um, on things. I mean, the passers always came early and that kind of creates this environment where even though you know you're going to be in the gym for th- close to four hours in the morning, f- three hours more commonly, but sometimes went over, but people were still coming early. It was just like addicting that we were getting better and seeing improvement. And for sure, you're trying to manage pain and your body and not, not exhaust yourself. But at the same time, it's just a little bit addicting to see improvements. And I think that, like I said, Tom, we just had such a short window of time too, before the VNL qualifier that it was like, well, we better get good quickly. So Um, I think everyone just bought into that and yeah, helped, uh, keep us on track and just fight through the exhaustion of it. Yeah. I was curious if you can give an example of how the growth mindset shifts to performance. And what I mean by that is like when he put on the board, I don't know, 14 days till your next competition. And then like, you see it trickle down to like eight, seven, six, like 
was there ever like a cap on learning that basically said, this is who we are and we need to go perform and win a tournament doing this? Or was there always growth mindset, even in competition phase? Um, I think that there's totally um, growth mindset still through competition. And we were learning from each match. We started out um, with the two matches, two matches, I think, in Chateauguay, Quebec. And um, we were able to win both of those. And I don't think we played spectacular volleyball by any means. But um, so we could learn through that and watch things that we were doing. Um, so I think there's growth through that. But there is a time and place for um, trying to fix technique and learn technique. And then when you get into the game, it, it is just go time. So you kind of go with what you've equipped yourself with till that point and hope that you can just do it to the best of your ability. And, uh, I think we did a good job really hammering that in at practice so that when we got to the games, even though it was like a, I think two week turnaround, maybe, maybe three week turnaround to our first competition that we were pretty ready. And I also think Tom did a really good job with, um, what he was breaking apart and how he was building it back up, um, on an individual scale. So, um, I think that helped a lot. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for all that you've shared so far. And the, the other one I wanted to pull on, cause we talked a big chunk about it on in your first interview was just being mindful. And I think being mindful in training sometimes is drawn to being like more internal and thinking about how you're moving or experiencing the skill. But I think there's a lot of data that if you're thinking about what your arm swings doing in competition, you're not really performing, you're not thinking tactically or, or in the moment. So was there a shift there? Or is there a way to be mindful in competition that you thought really served you and helped you perform at the highest level? Um, I think mindfulness and competition mostly came for me in between points. Maybe I had a second to reflect on something I had just done or could think, oh, I know that I approached, Tom was really working through my approach with me and something I, no one had ever really touched on before. I do have a little bit of a, I think you've said that before to me actually, Josh, about my, about my approach, but um, I, he worked on that. And I think there were times when I could reflect on that and think, oh, that must have affected what I did in that last hit and could try to change something. But um. No, I do think that once you're in game mode, you're just going, you try to just go lights out and not think too much about what you're doing um, from a technical point of view for too long, at least. And obviously, Tom deserves a lot of credit. I think he is an amazing coach and he's really good at sharing and you can just Google his name and listen to different presentations. But again, looking at your career, you've been exposed to so many coaches, whether it was Tom or Marcello or Lupo before that, or even your college career being at Marquette and then working with Kathy at Michigan State, or even going back to like you were a competitive high school program and played for Rob Fernley at Defenses. So you've you've got exposed to some really top tier coaches. And that doesn't even include your professional in, in Turkey, which I'm sure was a heck of a coach too, right? So what is your learning style when you're exposed to all these coaches? Like, are, are you more drawn to maybe someone who's going to be a yeller or are you more exposed to somebody who's going to like explain the why behind it? Or like you said, you're such a high level athlete that nobody's ever talked to you about your approach before you get to the national team. Like when you look back in your career in pieces, like what really draws you to a certain style of coaching or what pulls the most learning from you? Do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, I think kind of how Tom goes about his teaching. And I think that's what kind of brought back the passion and volleyball for me. I definitely don't think I respond to yelling. I mean, I can take it. I just don't think it's the most effective way, at least for my learning. But that being said, sometimes there's a time and place for it. Um, so I think just kind of breaking it down, I have a lot of questions. Rob always used to say, I ask so many questions and I do because I just want to understand it to just completely understand something before I try to do it. Um, so I can just try to do it perfectly. I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist on the court. So, um, just having kind of rationale behind why we're doing something and being able to ask questions and coaches not feeling necessarily, um, like I'm questioning them and their technique and more just trying to understand. Um, so I think Tom had a lot of that, uh, and high energy too. Um, but I also think there's time and place for yelling when, uh, it's necessary and discipline isn't, um, happening in the gym and um, there were definitely times when Tom needed to do that and it was called for so um, I think there's a balance but I do think I learn best from just being able to talk through something and watch video and just try to perfect it and copy it and yeah fix what I'm doing. Nice yeah and I, and I don't think you're alone in that I think a lot of athletes would share that and I'm curious if you could give me an example of what high energy is from a coach because in my own education and going through the NCCP and advanced coaching diploma and all this stuff there, there seems to be a movement in sport that a lot of people want athletes to learn through their own motion. Like they want them to figure it out on their own, which kind of limits feedback coaches give. So we're not in like the old school where the coach is on the sideline telling you exactly what to do. But I wonder if the pendulum swung too far the other way where because we want you to figure it out on your own that we're like distant or not, not talking every rep and all this other stuff. So 
I'm curious, where do you find the balance of an athlete that you feel like you're allowed to experiment and get the rep in, but what's like a high energy coach and what are they able to bring to you that you can, they can assist in your learning, I guess, while you're getting your reps? Yeah. Um, I think that it's obviously important for the athlete to be trying things out and fail and then try to fix it themselves. But I think it's a little bit athlete driven too. I mean, some people on our team are maybe, they maybe do better if they just watch a little bit of video of themselves and try to fix it. Um, I, I just try to get a coach watching whenever I was trying to fix something or work on a technique, I was just asking someone to watch and tell me what they saw. Um, so I think it's definitely athlete to athlete too, but I do think there is a place for like coach just stepping back and letting you kind of work through it, which I definitely struggled with. I would get super mad at myself and be asking our coaches after every single rep. And they're like, like autumn, just like relax a little bit and just do it. Stop thinking so much. So (laughs) I think there's a balance between the two of those things. And as you shift kind of from the youth movement to to maybe a vet on our national team, I'm curious how you've experienced this because uh, we mentioned on your first episode the, the need for a skill. And I think the need was exposed when you went to the Big Ten that you needed to learn how to, you know, use the block and hit off them and hit maybe sharper angles where sometimes athletes don't understand the the need for certain skills until we fail. So I'm curious now that you're a vet and you look back, is there a way athletes could be front loading these skills? Cause I, I, I totally feel for you. You're an 18 year with defensa and you can hammer balls and you're a high flyer and you have this beautiful arm swing that maybe you never thought of tooling the block, but you get to the NCAA and that's a need now. Is there anything you look back on your career that maybe you could help out younger athletes and front loading certain skills that you wish you had sooner that you maybe didn't need to fail before you acquired them? Yeah, that's um, actually, I was talking to Rob about that just the other day and saying it's a bit tough because I never had to, and a lot of us never had to hit high hands, like you said, at a club age. And even at Marquette, I wasn't needing to hit high hands necessarily. So it's kind of one of those things that it's like, well, not till it's this huge block is put in your face that you have to um, adapt. And so I think that that's maybe a hard skill just to have that in your pocket is good. And to be able to use it at some point, um, I think is important and you can get ahead of the game in that way. And, um, but I think most of all, um, Rob did a lot of vision training. Like we worked on seeing the court and seeing angles and seeing the blocker. I think that you can get away with, um, at a young age, not having to see a blocker and you kind of can just hit where you want and maybe someone digs it, maybe someone doesn't. But, um, if you're not kind of forcing, um, like young kids to look at the block and, um, expand their vision, then I don't think that just naturally happens. So I think that's important and you can coach that, um, ask them where they're seeing the block, if the block's lining up, um, on the, on the line or taking their cross from them or, even at a higher level, if you're able to try and see in your peripherals, maybe if the defender came off for a tip or if she stayed in the sharp cross, if you're um, hitting on the outside, um, kind of just trying to expand your vision. And especially in defense too, I think, I think playing beach helps a lot for that. You learn how to read um, and that can translate to indoor so much. So I just think that can be developed at a young age. And you can also try to develop all these other little things. Sharp cross, hitting sharp cross is something you can work on. You don't need a perfect situation for that um, or hitting line, just developing all of these things so that you have it in your back pocket and can just pull that out when you need it um, in a game or when you get to a higher level. Nice. Nice. And I'm curious when you mentioned you're watching video and comparing yourself to it, what was the best way you found? Cause obviously video is a little bit more accessible than maybe it was when you were a kid. Like I just think YouTube's so powerful and you can find almost any player on there now. Were you looking at like maybe a doppelganger or somebody who's your body type that moves a certain way? Or were you just drawn to maybe who you thought the best passing left side was and that's the reps you were going to watch? Or how did you kind of filter through who was going to model the right like mechanics or technique for you to then try to copy in your own gym? Yeah, I think um, even through college, I was a bit skeptical of who I was trying to copy. And it wasn't until national team, I think, that when Tom was showing me, I think he was showing us the U.S. libero. Um, and showing us her technique. And I just trusted that this had to be the best in the world because I mean, well, obviously how they do how the U S team does, um, on the, on the international stage, but just also that Tom was saying, this is the, this works, this technique works and putting my trust into that. So I started watching that and seeing how she was doing it simply and, um, trying to copy that a little bit. I think before that I was yeah definitely skeptical and maybe hadn't been told like, this is the technique, but, Also from coach to coach, everyone says that there's a different technique that is the best technique. So I think it's (laughs) hard to kind of sift through what you want to um, model your game after. 
But um, just when I came down to that and Tom showed me, it was like, yeah, this makes sense. So this is probably the best thing for me to try to do and copy and replicate here. And have you found a way to honestly reflect your game in a sense that like, oh, we just played Dominican and I felt like, oh, I couldn't score down the line. And then you went back and watched your tape and then built a shot out of that. Or what's a way for an athlete to kind of self-diagnose after a game and figure out what they need to add to their toolkit to be more successful next time? Yeah, totally. I I still watch random games and just dissect them. And um, I think that's the most important thing is you obviously know when you're in, the, in a game if something's working or something's not working. And maybe that's also just game planning against you. That happens a lot. Um, I love to do the roll shot just over the block, but maybe a team scouted that. And so then you can just see that and think, well, what else would have been open in that situation? And maybe you have that shot, maybe you don't, and then you need to go develop it because teams are obviously picking up on things. So I think that elevates your game. Um, and yeah, I just think watching video is so important because you can do that or think, oh, I had a bit of like a stutter step when I was doing this or my passing is way too um, complex and I can um, simplify that or um, just things like so many little details with your serve. We just dissected it so much. And even watching it right after you do it, obviously you could watch a game right after and dissect that. But um, if you have the ability to set up an iPad or whatever it is and watch yourself at a practice, then you get immediate feedback. And I think you can change things quicker and feel that you're doing something a little bit off and then change that. And then you can just do that quicker in a game situation or when you're competing. Now, is that a battle you had within yourself? Because I'm hearing you speak and it makes a lot of sense. But in working with some high-level beach players, maybe they need to work on their baby line or their cut shot or something within the first half of the court. But if they do that at a live setting, they're probably going to lose the drill. And we have so many competitive athletes and you would be in that boat too, that you're so competitive and you're playing at the highest level that you don't ever want to lose a drill. But did you ever find a way to like work on the things you needed to while still performing? Or did you have to kind of give up a sense of ego sometimes and lose a drill just to get that live rep of, of the specific skill you were working on? Yeah, that's totally a battle. I mean, I would hate to lose a drill doing something that you're not good at for sure. Like you said, um, but I do think that in those scenarios, it's important just to try live. And I think you gain confidence from that because if you can do it in a drill where you're trying to score and almost put more emphasis on it and what you're trying to do, um, then I think you gain confidence and know you can do it in those scenarios. But I also think it's important to take advantage. Like you were talking about earlier, Tom had the tutors. So we would go and work on those things in the tutors for so long and then be forced to do it in the drill. Um, and so I think you just have to take advantage. And it was kind of like, well, I would be more annoyed by myself. Like, well, why am I not good at, like, I need to be better at this because I need to score. I'm not losing games because I can't do something. So I think it forces you just to get good at it quick and, if you want to win, that is. Um, but there is like a time period of trying to give yourself grace, which I'm terrible at, um, but give yourself <laughs> some grace that you're learning something new or working on something new. Um, but I definitely just want to be good at it quickly, like a lot of competitive athletes for sure. Definitely. And I'm wondering if you could just show us the progression of these tutors. Like, let's use the example of out of system hitting. Like, would you start with no blockers, nobody on the other side of the net and just focus on your approach to the ball, how you're lining it up, what shot you can hit, like, or, or how simple or how complex do some of these tutors get? Cause I think anyone who's involved in like motor learning and things like that, that you want some contextual interference. You want it to be as close to live as we can get it, but there's still that acquisition phase that we need to get used to the ball in certain situations. So how, how bare bones would it get or how specific would it get right off the bat when you're looking at some new skills? Yeah. Tom broke it down to the smallest details. I mean, we were, when we were doing out, out of system hitting, for example, we were even so focused on how we were shuffling from like a free ball pass or what, a down ball, whatever it was to the outside of the court. And if you weren't doing that right, do it again, just keep doing it again. And it was, I think it was like a five step. I haven't played in so long. I forget right now, but <laughs> I think it was like a five step kind of shuffle out to the outside of the court and where your location is. And yeah, if we, it was just perfecting that at first. And then after we would get those, we would start, um, just, yeah, t try to attack and maybe there was no block and um, getting your feet to a good position and having the ball in front of you and being able to take a line shot or a cross shot or hit high hands, whatever that was. And then I guess we would introduce blockers, the middles would maybe come over after that and start working on that. And then it would all be put into gameplay. And maybe it was like two points if you hit high off hands or um, yeah, out of system, whatever, or, or it was forced, like the third down ball is going to be an out of system ball. And then we would have to do it. Um, so we would have to work on it. So, um, it just progressed and definitely forced you to work on those things. Even if you don't want to, it was broken down so 
particularly into skill stuff. So Amazing. Yeah, and you just said something that sparked something in my brain where I, I heard Hugh McCutcheon speak on Coach Your Brains Out about how important it is to get your feet to the ball. And then we spoke to what I feel is an arm swing expert in Isaac Newbel. And he was talking about like the sequence really starts at your approach and your step close. So was that something that Tom focused on in the gym as well? That like you need to be accelerating, but if your feet aren't lined up with the ball, then you can't have good double arm lift. You can't have a good drawback. You can't hit this shot. Like was it broken down that specific that you really are trying to get your feet to a good position before we even talk about arm swing? Because I think a lot of coaches working with you would get distracted about how awesome your loop arm swing is and how you accelerate and how you open. But is that really the key to outside hitting is getting your feet to the ball? Um, I would say so. It's it's a huge part of it. I mean, if your feet aren't in a good position, then your body's not in a good position and your arm swing doesn't necessarily matter so much because you kind of take shots away from yourself if your feet are if you're too under the ball then maybe you're not seeing the block because you're looking up at the ball or if you're too far away from the ball then you need to hit maybe deeper because you're yeah too far away or um just depends because um if you're yeah it totally makes a difference if you're taking a cross court away from yourself because of where your feet positioning are um so i think that is probably one of the most, if not the most important part of setting yourself up to be in good position for attacking. And if you had to think about it, do you frame the court and approach to the same spot, whether you're doing out of system hitting or in system hitting? Like, are you facing the same spot in five? Or are you facing more of the five, six seam? Like, is it similar or because the set tempo is so different that you do almost a different approach for each situation? Um, I think my approach is the same for every situation. Um, your timing is obviously different with a higher set. Um, but I think the, the approach is pretty similar no matter what, but it obviously varies where the set location is. I think with a faster tempo set, you're expecting the ball to land in a certain space. And there's maybe, I mean, you could argue both ways, but there's more room for air, but less room you're expecting it in kind of a small window. Um, and, and out of system ball, same kind of situation, but, um, there's obviously extreme situations where maybe you're at the back of the court trying to set a ball. So, um, it's not always going to be perfect though that's what you're trying to achieve and um so i think you vary your timing and your um the direction you're taking your approach on based on the set sometimes but um i think the approach in itself is pretty similar amazing amazing and the other skill that comes to mind with me at least when you talk about you know doing tutors and building them up and getting them into gameplay one thing that other players have admitted on the show is Tom was really big that when he got the the reins with the women's national team, the serving was going to be a lot more aggressive. But as somebody who still coaches at the youth level, I find that as soon as you want aggressive serving, that's like the number one drill killer. That if we start missing serves, then everything else breaks down and the passer starts standing around and it gets a little frustrating and dull. So how did you guys as a squad serve aggressively without like ruining the drill if you know what i mean like how yeah. did you figure out like the passers one needed to be patient or that maybe there was a free ball if we were getting too stale like how did you build that into practice that we could go for it on our serve and nobody was losing their mind if we missed like three in a row or something yeah um well we definitely worked on um serving kind of outside of those drills so much it was it was insane i <laughs> i had one practice because Tom had our, some of our assistant coaches were, we measured our serve based on three things, um, speed, um, how much spin or lack of spin. We wanted no spin, obviously with a float serve. And I think height above the net was the last one. Um, so we were measuring it based on those three criteria and you had to get, I think it was however many in a row without missing within those three things, or maybe it wasn't a row, just maybe 10 or something like that. But, um, I was back there and if you missed, you took one away, something like that. And I was back there for so long that the rest of the girls were standing around the court. I was the only person serving. And it was just that it was like, okay, well now there's pressure too, because everyone's waiting on you to finish this drill. So, um, I mean, there was the pressure and you had to work through that and it was frustrating, but, um, then you got it into gameplay and translated to that. And I think what we did, I think you might've got two attempts Tom could listen to this and think I'm completely wrong. I don't remember, but <laughs> I think we had two attempts and uh, then I think maybe a free ball was put in. Um, and obviously people were annoyed just because they're, everyone wants to play off a serve. And also there's just the pressure of that's what you would face in a game too. So um, I think you, you kind of work through that um, and you're going to have your off days. I had off days where I was just missing a ton during that and you're putting so much pressure on yourself when you go back there, but it does pretty much replicate what happens when you're in a game. So think if you can just perfect it again in drills when you're outside of it and then get there and really try to apply what you learned in the tutors to gameplay it helps kind of everybody and yourself that's an awesome point and i kind of want to just magnify that a little bit so you mentioned the elimination drill created some pressure 
And did that transfer to a game or did the other one where you only get two attempts magnify? Because I think sometimes on, on our beach drills, we say you have to miss two in a row to get a point. And I think that kind of gives them a crutch or an off ramp where I'm curious if we could just really clarify your last point. What is the best way to simulate the, the game pressure when you're going for it on your serve? Yeah, I think that I think that probably when we were playing in gameplay, that's the most that's the closest you can get to actual gameplay. And so I think that's probably the most pressure. And um, we did something similar to where the other team would get a point, um, but you did have a bit of a crutch. So I think you don't get that, and maybe you wean off that after a while. But when you're when you're first um, in- introducing something new, like we were trying to achieve those three criteria on our serves. Um, you do give yourself a little leeway and time to learn, but after a while, it's just, I think, and there is for the sake of the drill that you're, you're trying to like put a hard serve in play. But um, I think the best way to learn is probably just doing it like how you would do it in a game. And once you lose the point, you lose the point. But um, yeah, again, there is like a learning curve and I think there is importance for sometimes giving a second serve. So you can really just go for it um, though. That wouldn't happen in a game. Nice. These are some amazing tips. I like how you break it down like you're hitting against nobody and then you build it in and then it's a criteria in the wash drill and you get chances to do it. And in your mind, is that the best way to prepare you for a match or is just a match another level? Like it's one thing to do it in your gym at the Oval, but when you play against Dominican, USA, Puerto Rico, whoever, um, is it just feel like that much different or was there a way that like coaches can script these situations that they do transfer the most to gameplay? Yeah, you can simulate it to the best of your ability. And I think that's what we do in gameplay. But also in your gym, everyone knows you and what shots you like, or maybe what you do in a certain situation or can pick up on tendencies that maybe other teams aren't seeing as much. So um, that might open up some things or on the other, on the other hand, um, teams scout you, obviously. So maybe some things that work in your gym don't work with their system or they have something set up in defense for exactly what you like to do. And that happens. And I think that's the difference between gameplay and in, in a competition versus gameplay, maybe in practice or even just in tutors for sure. It's different because you're learning on the fly. You're seeing, okay, I tried that shot. It didn't work. And I mean, you can watch gameplay on them before, but um, they're going to scout something specifically for you. So you can't know necessarily what they're going to do against you. But um, I think you can try something out in the game, see if it's scored, kind of get a feel for where their defense is or what their block likes to do. And then you adapt on the fly. So I think that's kind of the element of what we were talking about before of having those things in your back pocket where if you're thinking, okay, so yeah, she's picking up the roll shot that's not working. Then maybe a high line shots there or, um, yeah, you just kind of feel out where they're, what their defense is doing. Um, I'm talking obviously in particular, um, hitting in particular, but, um, yeah, I think it's just on the fly. So that's super different and helps if you can be confident in a lot of things and, um, then you can bring that into a game and just have confidence that you have kind of a plan B when what you like to do isn't working. Nice. And I'm curious through your career, has there ever been a way to kind of dress rehearsal this? And the reason I asked, like, I don't know if it happens at the national team or maybe in Michigan state or Marquette, but we've had previous guests like Alex Russell played at UBC or, or, uh, Jaron Mueller was at Alberta and they said the box squad, like the bench guys took so much pride in preparing the team that they would like start to carry themselves a certain way in practice, or they would deliberately try to mimic like who they were representing on the court. So I just thought it was such a fun idea they were doing in their gym. I wonder if you've ever come across that where maybe at Michigan state, you guys would play like Purdue does, or you play a certain defense, or is there a way to script this without having to like go through it live? Yeah, we totally um, did kind of a similar thing. And the girls of our jerseys, similar colors theirs. And um, each girl took on a role and that was the person they were. And some girls even come to practice kind of dressed up as them, maybe wearing a certain thing that they typically wear in games or whatever it was, <laughs> which was kind of humorous. But um, yeah, it definitely helps. And then you're, and they're completely um, committed to doing exactly what that team does to help you learn. And it's, it's so important. I, that was a new thing to me in college. Obviously we don't really do that in club or anything, but, um, it's so important and it's really cool when the bench takes that so seriously because it, it is such a huge, there's so much value to that and, um, completely setting your team up for, um, what they're going to face in the game. And I think that's so important and really cool when the bench can get into that. 
Now, one thing I did want to follow up with you from your first interview, because we got you before the Quebec event, but before most of the rosters have been announced. And I thought one cool thing that the women's national team was doing was there was such a big pool of athletes. And then obviously there was the tough job of narrowing it down to certain rosters. And you had mentioned that like everybody was one squad. And even though there was 40 girls on the team, like you made a point that you were trying to learn everybody's name and talk to them and be friends. But did the mood ever change when rosters get announced in your mind that like all of a sudden this is the A team and they're in competition phase versus you know, the athletes who weren't selected, they might be practicing at a different time or not necessarily excluded, but not a part of that group as much. Like, how did you feel as an athlete, the mood would change as the season kind of progressed going into certain like competitions and rosters being announced and little things that go into the team dynamic that way? Yeah, that, that's actually a really cool thing about our team, I think, is that um, obviously it changes things when someone is selected or not selected to a roster. But we pretty early on had our development team and our A team, and we actually just practiced separately. Um, but from the A team, I don't even know how many girls are on our team, but um, it's not as huge of a pool. And I think we all got really close. And I think we've gotten really close through all the coaching changes and um, just t- through going through tough things through the summer. And um, I think everyone is in competition with each other, but everyone has a respect and love for each other. And so um, even if you're competing with somebody else and you're trying to make, take that roster spot over them, I think there's a respect and, um, everyone's still trying to help each other. It's not, I think it's cutthroat in the way that everyone's just trying to, to make the roster and get that spot. But I think there's also, it's like, well, we gave it our all. And if you're not the one selected, I think it's not like there's hard feelings and, um, we just come back and train. And also we switch in and out. Tom had different people coming in and out, um, of the roster with different tournaments. So I think that helps too. You're trying to keep good relationships with everybody and, um, not see them in a different light or because they might be on the roster the next trip and maybe you're not. So I think it's just a kind of whatever, whoever's doing well at that point and that's the best decision to take them, but who knows the next tournament could be different. And so I don't think there was a lot of variation with them, how the team's chemistry was or energy around that. Um, but I'm sure that happens a lot and could be the case. Nice. Yeah. Good to hear. And I'm curious how you felt your role changed throughout your career with the national team. Cause I think as an outsider, it's easy for me to maybe label like Kyla Ritchie or Jen Cross as the leaders, just because they've been there a little bit longer, but looking at the roster, I think you're near the vet stage where like there's younger people like Bree and Kira Van Rijk, who like chose to leave university to go play pro because they thought it would help the national team, right? So have you identified yourself as like a leader in a vet or how do like, you like to carry yourself with these new athletes kind of coming in or out or the roster changing? Like, have you taken a leadership role upon yourself or how do you view like your spot on the on the squad? Yeah, it's. I guess it's a bit of a weird thing because it does feel like well, I played the first summer and I, I was um, one of the younger girls then and then obviously just a couple months of the second summer. And so now, given the time, it's been, I guess, two more summer, yeah, two more summers since then. And um, so a vet by age and that, but I don't necessarily think I've experienced so much more than some of the younger girls have. Um, Kira and I came in at the same time. Um, so I guess that's a little bit different. I think more than trying to be a vocal leader, I just try to lead by example or what I'm doing on the court. Um, don't. I think Kyla and Jen do a, an amazing job at um, leading our team and everyone has so much respect for them. Um, and I think that maybe that will come with time for me. But right now I just try to do what I can do on the court and lead by example in that way. Um, and maybe there'll be a time for that in the future. But uh, I do think that I try to use my experience, you know, even playing in Turkey or playing at Michigan State, um, to help some of the girls or, um, again, do something by example or try to perfect my passing and just maybe help other people with their technical things in that way. Um, if they're looking for help, um, or just use experiences that I've had to draw on when we're talking about something. Um, but I'd like to gain some more experience before I think that I could see myself in that way. Cause I think obviously a leader needs to be able to perform in high intensity um, situations or kind of have a solution for things, um, for other people to look to them. And that's not always the case, but I think that's important too. Nice. Yeah. And I, I was wondering if you could give us an example of anything you like to do with a, uh, with a newer athlete to the program or anything that somebody did for you. Cause you mentioned like you guys do break into tutor groups and smaller groups. Like, is there anything that you feel is like a really important thing about team building just to make somebody feel welcomed and comfortable and that they 
they can learn. Cause I think the, the way this growth mindset is set up the, the way Tom did it, you really do need to be vulnerable. And I think to do that, you have to have trust and be comfortable around the group that you're not going to be like embarrassed if you don't get this rep. Right. So how have you found a way to either with your own comfort level or found a way to pass that on to somebody else to make them feel like they're in a safe space and can really go for it on their, their next rep? Yeah. And I think that's totally exploited when we're in these hitting tutors or whatever tutor is because you're pretty much doing one rep individually and maybe other people are doing things to like maybe passing in the drill or whatever it is, but everyone's watching you do this thing. And if you're not doing it properly, do it again. And so there is a level of vulnerability. And I think that, um, you just kind of get to that place or come in knowing that, that, yeah, I'm going to have to kind of break down to the, to ground level before I can build up from there. And when you see that everyone is kind of struggling through some things, um, it helps you to feel like you can be vulnerable. And then I also think we just kind of help each other. We go off of each other. Or I say like, Hey, I'm not getting this. Like, can you just tell, like, what are you doing to get this? Cause you seem to be doing it well. And so uh, people are willing to help each other. And we're obviously all for the same cause though, competing for spots and trying to make each other better. So I think that helps. And, um, I guess somebody new coming in, I would just say, I mean, I was scared coming in and sometimes, I mean, I traveled after the first week of practice and had no clue about the systems or anything like that. And you're kind of just like wide eyed and not really a clue what's going on and introduced to the international level. And it's different. Um, so I'd say, especially with Tom, uh, as a coach, and obviously that's not the case anymore, but, um, probably with any coach and coming to a new program, just go in and sure you can have confidence, but just be willing to make changes and, um, you can question things, but you're going to just kind of get broken down your skills and learn new things. And so it's, it's just quicker to be vulnerable and allow yourself that time and realize you're going to get bad at things and, um, just to kind of lean on your teammates in those moments. Now, does the environment really influence your attitude as it comes to learning? Cause I, I it's great to hear the inside about the women's indoor team. And I love a good Tom Black story and everything you've accomplished, but in doing this podcast, I'm curious, sometimes when people go play pro, they feel like they don't get coached up and it's all about performance. And especially as a foreigner, like your job is to score points. They're not there to like rework your arm swing or your passing ability. So I'm curious with your year of pro in Turkey, did you have the same excitement for learning or did you feel like you were caught in this trap of, I need to show up every day. I need to perform. I need to be ready to go because that's what the expectations are. Yeah. I think it's a lot of self-learning because that's exactly what it is. You're your expectation is just to perform. So if something's off to you, then if they're not coaching you through something or you're asking for help, but it's not really working or they have a different style that would maybe involve you changing your whole approach or attack or something like that, then it's, it's on you just to learn and see what you have to do score. So maybe you're watching video or maybe you're seeing um, your old video of what the team did against you last time you played them. So you can try to switch things up. It comes to a lot of that. And then there's also just kind of like a catch 22 of how much do you change? Because often we go to a pro team for a year and then you go back to national team and the consistent thing um, is national team or going learning hopefully the same systems every year. And so you're kind of thinking like, do I change all this just to go back and try to relearn it? And sure it happens a bit because you're um, trying to be coachable and adapt to whatever they want you to do in pro. But um, so it, yeah, it kind of puts you in a weird situation. And I think it is just a lot of self-learning and, um, you're not always going to get the answer that you want from your coach um, necessarily. So I think show like learning from what you've done before in the past and what worked in the past and trying to bring that there. Cause like you said, it is your job to score and um, just kind of be a go-to hitter on the court. Now we had uh, Justine Wong Arantes, who is the libero currently with the U S national team. And she mentioned a story that she likes to have contact with their U S coaches, whether it's the positional or whether it's Karch. Um, but they try not to interfere with what the pro club wants. And I'm curious with your experience, when you went over to Turkey, did you have any contact with VC at that time or did they were kind of hands off and let the club team do it? Or was there times to talk with some VC coaches and have them maybe give advice or just be an ear for you to vent, but not really take over what you're trying to do with your club team? Yeah, I think also when, when I was in Turkey, we were kind of um, in between Marcello had just left and we hadn't, we didn't have a new coach yet. So I didn't have a ton of contact with them, but I do know that um, the girls were able to contact them a ton um, during that time or during the time this past year when they were in pro. Um, and I think it's kind of a similar situation that they're wanting you to do what the coach wants you to do in pro. Um, it also helps your situation there to not kind of just, yeah, just try to follow suit when you're there. Um, but I think that our coaches definitely help in breakdown film and you can watch certain things that are just, um, not optional, like some things that just don't change. For example, maybe a serving technique. I don't think if you have a good serve, I don't know that pro teams are necessarily changing your serve. <laughs> so I think if you're breaking down those things or even, I know 
I think Bree talked to our setting coaches a lot while she was over there and um, just trying to get better while you're over there if you're not getting maybe the coaching you want. But um, yeah, trying to just stick with what they tell you to do and again, be coachable. But um, you can contact them if you need them for things. And I think they're more than willing. They've been more than willing to help us through some stuff. Amazing. Well, I'm just looking at the clock and I, I know you wanted a break from your family, but at the same time, we are interrupting family time and it's just great to hear. So if you had to guess right now, when are we going to see you back on the court? I know it might be too soon to predict, but it, it does sound like you're making exciting progress. Like when have you been cleared maybe to do ball work that uh, myself and your other fans can look forward to? Yeah. Um, at this point I haven't actually been cleared to do ball work. We, I'll have an MRI when I get back to Vancouver in January and we're going to see kind of what's up and maybe talk to a few other specialists. But my goal is to be back on the court, hopefully doing ball work in March safely. I just said I want to be back on the court as efficiently, but as safe as possible. Um, so we're trying to follow that kind of guideline. And I think the whole team's on board with that. Um, but ideally I'm, and realistically, I think March, I would love to be back on the court, which I kind of thought I'd be back on the court last March, but um, that's okay. So hopefully then fingers are crossed for that and just trying to kind of work hard and stay positive through that anyways. Yes, very well said. You've been patient up to this point. So hopefully my question didn't make you want to be more urgent and get back to it. But <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it is exciting to hear about your process. And, and I think the, the women's indoor team is definitely trending in the right direction. And it is, you know, disappointing or sad that Tom had to step away. And obviously he's got a young family and coaching at the University of Georgia still. So he's got some things on the go. But as sad as that is, it's equally as exciting to see players like yourself and, and Bree and some other young players coming into their own and really taking over the program. And, and for Shannon to be the head coach is exciting as well. So it, it sucks we lost Tom, but I still feel like there's a lot to be excited about. And obviously you're a big piece of that. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing all that you did. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. One thing we've really tried to make a tradition on the show is just to end with a funny story. So everybody's learned through your two episodes now that you're you're playing at the highest level. You've accomplished everything from like club, provincial and national championships to playing for our national team. But man, something funny or odd must have happened along the way that shows that, you know, even when you make it in volleyball, it's still going to be a good time. So I was hoping you could share a funny or odd story before we let you go. <laughs> yeah, the story is about Tom and I'm not sure how he'll uh, feel about me sharing it, but we've talked through it. So I think it's okay. But uh we just had this one practice and we were working to, to be fair, two weeks before this, a ball went into the kind of off the court. Someone um, shanked a ball and I ran to save it and ran full speed into a bike to try to save it. So I felt like I had established that, like, I'm going to go for the ball if it's off the court. And anyway, so we're in this drill and Bree was blocking. It was actually Bree's first practice with um, the A-team. And she kind of touched the ball on the block and it just kind of fell off her hand. I was in six back and it kind of fell off the off the block. In my opinion, like too far to get in front of me because I thought, you know, I would try if it was close enough. But uh, anyways, fell off the block and landed. And Tom came over and, you know, when coaches come over and they're going to hit balls at you kind of just to prove the point of what, what you're doing. So Tom comes and he hits the first ball. I dig it. Hits the second ball and it hits me right in the face. So then I was just kind of mad after that. and had a little bit of attitude, which I shouldn't have. But so he <laughs> takes the third ball and whips the ball full speed ahead into the back curtain and I turn and look at the ball thinking I don't know if he thought I was going to go for that or if that was out of anger and then he looks at me and he says go for the ball and I thought oh my gosh he wanted me to get that one so then he does it does it again and throws the next one into the back curtain really far away like and I, I kind of turned and took a step and thought how, how would I ever even get that ball? And so then he says again, go for the ball. So then I turn and he does it again, something a little, a little bit closer to me, but I turned and run and dove and still didn't get the ball and stand up and the drill was over. And we were both just silent towards each other for a little bit. And, uh, he came up after to me and we just had a little talk through it. And, uh, I won't disclose what we said, but we were arguing a little bit. And uh, anyway, so that was kind of the funny story. And then a few months later, I uh, got injured, had my surgery and uh, got a card. He said, like, Autumn, check your mail, check your mail. We sent you something from Georgia. So I go and they sent me this huge can of coffee, Georgia, like they were specifically for University of Georgia coffee beans and then a Georgia card with it. And on the card, he said, get well soon, Autumn, um, some other nice things. And then he wrote, and uh, please don't forget to play defense at practice next time. <laughs> like months later, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. But uh, yeah, we still bicker about that. And 
what my opinion was versus what his opinion was, but we have a good relationship. We're on good terms. So. Oh, amazing. So. Thanks for sharing that. And I am, I am curious just to be a fly on the wall. How long after something boils over, like when you show up the next day, is everything cool? Like, is he really good at not holding grudges or when something boils over like that, is there a bit of a avoidance phase between the two of you? I think that there's just no time for that on the court. And I think you just have to get over it quickly. And if you're holding on to it, that's almost grounds for more like anger towards it. It's just like, yeah, you're trying to learn, you're trying to grow. So get over it. And I think that's kind of where we were at, but just because we didn't necessarily agree, there was a little bit more attention and we, neither of us were budging on what we felt about that though. I probably should have just stepped down. Um, <laughs> so I think that's yeah something you just get over pretty quick. Oh, amazing. Another good one to add to our list. So thank you for sharing that and everything else you shared. I definitely learned a lot. As someone who considers themselves a, a fan of yours, I always learn every time we chat. So it's always good to catch up with you and exciting that you're you're home for the holidays and get to hang out with your family because I know you're living on the West Coast now, but definitely some exciting stuff coming and hopefully you can come back from that injury even better than you were before and, and get this thing going with Team Canada. Because like I said, you guys are definitely on the rise and it's exciting to be a fan of right now. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I hope so too. Fingers crossed. <laughs>